0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the QuadCast podcast. Here, U123, with my guests, W2.0, and still without any alias, it's Brandon. Cool. So, um, yeah, what we're going to be discussing today.
1: In today's podcast, we are going to be talking about um, the results of the Stack Overflow, Stack Overflow, if I can say it right, development survey, which was published around April, It's been a topic we've always wanted to discuss. And last year, we literally sort of like live tweeted the results as we were reading it. So we've come up with like 21 of the most important results that we want to discuss amongst us and see what we think and see what some of the results were. So we hope you enjoy. Before we begin to discuss the results of Stack Overflow's 2019 developer survey, I wanted to provide a bit of information as to what Stack Overflow is for those of us who are new to programming or for those of us who have never used the site. In simple terms, Stack Overflow is a question and answer platform that allows programmers to ask technology-related questions regarding issues they may have with their code, software development questions, or anything related. Once a programmer has submitted their question onto Stack Overflow, they can expect to receive a response from Expert programmers all over the world who are doing God's work and hopefully provide a solution to the programmer's question. Essentially, that's what Stack Overflow is. So recently, a few years ago, Stack Overflow decided to start doing surveys where they ask developers questions about their work. The sort of programming languages they use at their work, uh, etc. Normally this server is used to sort of see what language has been used the most by developers, what operating system has been used the most, and you know, the most top-earning um programmers, etc. Also, Stack Overflow is probably a website we would dedicate half of our degree to because it saved us a lot from those nights of um, having bugs in our code. So yeah, essentially that's what it is. Yeah, so kick off with the first question, basically, or one of the first results. To be honest, this isn't in chronological order. This is like randomly. We're doing this just radically, so don't expect it to be in order. And the first one is developer type. What developers would you think
2: participated the most? I read it earlier, but yeah. I think top of my head was going to be um, web developers because that's the area I am in, so I guess I was being biased.
1: The top ones uh, respondents were um, developers, basically, and that's full stack, back end and front end. With full stack having 52% of respondents, uh, back end having 50% and front end having 32.8%, basically. So everyone else, of course, range from desktop to mobile to student, etc. So that's interesting to see. The next question is coding as a hobby how many of the respondents
0: code as a hobby? What do you guys think? You want to free? What do you think? The thing is with technology is a thing where the people who actually go into it really, it's not like, um, how can I compare it to like another field? Like, I don't know, maybe accounting or something like that or mm. something else. It's like, once you get into it, it's like, because there's so much variations of what you can do with technology, it gives people the incentives to do stuff outside mm. of work or in their own time. There's a range of things you could do with technology, such as build apps or, you know, even with AI, build robots or whatnot, just do crazy things with it. So it gives people the incentive to do something new or try something strange, if, if I could say with yeah. technology. So that's what really inspires people to, to do it as a hobby. So I'm, I'm guessing most people do do it as a hobby. yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Um, You know, most
1: respondents, 80% of them said yes, whilst, uh, you know, the rest of them said no. So, yeah, it was quite interesting that many developers work on code outside of their work. So another result was um, years since learning to code. 45% of professional developers on Stack Overflow learned to code less than 10 years ago. You know, um, 20% said less than five years ago. The majority of them said five to nine years ago that's when they learned to code. And wow, this is pretty interesting, given that you know, people from the age of 20 to 35 were the majority of people who participated in the survey. So that means you're telling me that most of them probably started programming in their late uh, teens or uh, 20s. That's interesting. What do you guys think about that? How many years have you guys been programming, would you say?
2: Uh-huh. I, I think mine is seven years. That's when I started okay. uni. So seven years ago, I don't know that some of the European students were already learning in their teens. So that would have yeah. been 10, 10 years ago. So that five to, to nine year mark, and even the the less than five year mark is pretty is pretty spot on. And I think that also shows that this whole push for programming, or programming becoming one of the, you know, the the hot topics and jobs that is in the, I mean high demand. Um, this is evidence of it, that people have had to resort, you know, to learning programming to be able to go into different job roles and more people are coming into it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, yeah, mine would be like seven or eight since uh, learning to code. Yeah. How about you, you E123?
0: Yeah, mine's about seven.
1: Sweet, sweet, sweet. So, but in regards to professional developers, 13.4% of them said less than five years. The majority of them, again, said five to nine years. And then the second largest was, you know, 10 to 14 years, which is... Yeah, makes sense. Okay, so moving on to the next result. This is where it gets a bit interesting. So this is the result for writing that first line of code. Um, what age do you think most people
2: basically wrote their first line of code or writ I should say? If if we're going based on on just the previous result, yeah. It should still be around that um the highest of them should be around that nine. Because for the professional ones, they have been learning up to 14 years. Mm-hmm. So it should be around that, you know, the first time they were, you know, most people wrote a line of code it would have been 14 years ago and it should be hello world. <laughs> That's like the first thing we all learned. Yeah. In almost any programming language. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mine was hello world. Actually, you know, my first
1: line of code I said in the previous podcast, it was, um, some guy in my, um, ICT class who were creating some flash animation stuff. And I saw his flash software do some crazy stuff was in back this and stuff and i was like how did you do that i want my animation to do that and he just basically says i don't know what's doing but just copied and pasted like a fat chunk of code into my into my program and it started doing the same thing so i don't know if i'll class that as around my first time with code but that was the first time i sort of interacted with uh with code yeah how about
0: you at e123 what would you say mine was um it was in college but it wasn't really hello world it was uh what was it? it was vb.net and SQL, and uh i think it was hello world but i my memory's strong in doing SQL mm. so in college but VB vb.net was there but i can't remember like the stuff okay
1: yeah. that's interesting i mean being taught sql first is kind of um unorthodox in in college yeah it's interesting but Back to the results. So the majority of people wrote their first line of code when they were 14 to 15 years old with 20%. The second highest is 17%, which was 16 to 17 years old. The next is 18 to 19 years old, which makes a lot of sense. If we were to look at the results by country though, um, most, <laughs> I'm not surprised by this. Most people in India wrote their first uh, line of code when they were 17, 17, I should say. For Brazil, it's 16 um, in America, it's 15. And we'll not be surprised by this one. In Poland, it's 14. And it makes sense because my mentor, he started programming since he was like 13, 14. It's mandatory for them or something like that. And um, for United Kingdom, is also 14 as well, which I'm pretty shocked by because I don't remember touching code when I was in, in secondary school. Do you guys recall?
0: No, not in secondary school. Mm-hmm. I think probably, I, I'm not sure... Um, the people they're speaking to, maybe um, when we left school, like the curriculum changed a bit. I'm not too sure, but Mm. that's probably why. But yeah, I don't remember the secondary school touching touching college. Probably the people like maybe 10
1: years ahead of us and stuff that, Mm. you know, they were coding way longer for us basically but then again i guess we could also argue the same for right now you know um, the government have recently introduced a new um a new thing whereby computer science has become compulsory to learn in in secondary schools in order to ensure that you know uk meets up with the technology uh requirements needed you know because mm-hmm. um I, I don't know if you know but UK right now it needs uh, a lot of developers right now especially in London in one of the results and another survey I was looking at so the UK is trying to basically get more students to learn how to code or get more students into STEM basically and they're pushing that into curriculums they're getting teachers to do more um, you know teacher training courses in computer science and I think yeah this is definitely going to be um, different for for um, younger generations I mean one of my younger siblings learned programming like in primary school She's oh, wow. what I'm saying. So it's already as young as that. And I think Brandon also has, also has a similar experience, don't you, Brandon?
2: Yeah. Um, so my little sister right now, she's in year six. So she's already learning programming and I've, even I taught her a bit of, um, HTML as well. So she, she's been playing around with, with some programming. My colleague daughter, I think she's in year 10 or 11 and she's already doing like Python advanced programming and things like that. But funny enough, when he 123 to reset VB, I just remember that actually in college was when I wrote my first line of code, which was um, VB and we're creating a, a calculator. And I even did a um, human-computer interaction and we did some backend stuff with Flash as well. Um, so yeah, I guess my first line of code wasn't actually seven years ago, but probably like nine, 10 years ago. Oh, interesting. And I still hate programming.
1: <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that later and lastly in regards to gender women wrote their first line of code later than men and that's not a surprise you know for women it was by 17 they wrote their first line of code and for men it's by 15 so we can see there's still a lot of work to do in terms of inclusion in terms of women in tech and encourage more women to basically get into tech basically so yeah i found that data
0: interesting as well and uh, yeah. the other genders as well I think it was 14 as well
1: oh yeah 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 so you got the non-binary yeah um, and the gender non-conforming with uh, 14 so they actually learned to program um early as well so yeah thanks for running yeah so moving on to the next result in terms of other types of education The majority of the respondents said that they taught themselves um, how to code basically that they're self-taught so 85.5 percent of them said they're self-taught followed by taking an online course in programming or software development and followed by contributing to open source software and followed by received on-the-job training in software development which i think is interesting in terms of self-taught as as crazy as it sounds even though I did study computer science in uni, I would consider myself a self taught programmer because, um, I actually taught the, myself the majority of programming. I think, um, uni only sort of gave me the hint or the idea. I had to basically go back and see, build things to see what I could, um, what I could, uh, what the language is capable of. And yeah, I guess that's the whole point of teaching in uni i guess i don't think they're meant to teach you the whole thing in general i think they're meant to give you an idea but what would you guys say would you guys say you're self-taught or would you say you know you had to be sort of pushed by education to uh to um learn a program
0: language um i think it's a bit of both with me um because in uni they did like teach you the foundations but then with that foundations you'll then have to build your own stuff basically through coursework and 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 other things but yeah, I would say to get that extra information. If you want to try something mm-hmm. new, you probably have to teach yourself. Well, yeah, teach yourself the the language if you want to basically take it a step further, because um university doesn't really take you to learn that extra, be in that advanced level.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, yeah, I would say a bit of both of it.
1: Actually, just before Brandon says something to clarify myself, what I was trying to say is that I learned more about programming than in uh in uni basically oh, right, right. and I think um um yeah you're right uni did teach the foundations but um me actually going after lecture or you know learning you know building stuff after is actually um increased my knowledge of programming and stuff like that. So yeah I would say yes with uni, but the majority of my learning and understanding came from teaching myself. How about
2: yourself, Brandon? Um I think for me I mine is slightly different in the sense that as everyone said, you do get a foundation from uni, but because I picked um the database side of it and went into a role, I was privileged to have experienced people around me to actually add on to the knowledge I had already. So I didn't have to do too much going out of my um going out to seek the knowledge myself because I had people there to, to teach me. When it came to like the web development side of um, web design, side of that most of that was self-taught. I remember when we used to sit top floor in Aston and where you showed me that bootstrap, uh, website. And that's when I started really doing like front end design myself, learning that part myself. So I, was, I got, I, I think I it was more maybe 25, 25, 50, 25 education, 25 self-taught and then 50%. Of my data, database development knowledge was more taught by, um, experienced, um, staff ahead of me. So
1: that's an interesting result. I just want to ask you, would you say your database, um, teachings helped, you know, increase your understanding of learning other programming languages?
2: Um, no, I think knowing other programming languages helped. Picking up what people were trying to teach me in in database. so I was already coming in with the uh, Java background, you know. Um, see from what we we have done in uni days, uh, so that that did help. So when they were trying to explain things compared to other people who didn't have any programming background, it was easier for me to pick it up. And obviously, it's, it's not just them teaching me every single line of code I know. For database, um, although some people say CSQL is not programming, it is programming. <laughs> <laughs> why Why are you guys laughing? It's it's
1: programming. You, you know the truth, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, I get where you're coming from. That makes sense. Um, I do believe learning other programming languages allows you to sort of build the constructs of understanding programming itself. I think I like the fact that Aston, our university, actually taught us Java first because it allowed me to see the similarities with Java and other similar object-oriented languages like maybe, say, you know, um, C, Python, and et cetera. And even JavaScript itself, you can see similarities in all these languages and, um, you know, Haskell and stuff like that. So I do believe, I do agree with you by saying you learning those different languages allowed you to, you know, it deepened your understanding on pro- in programming. Makes sense. Cool. Now that we said that, moving on to um, the next one, This is an interesting one. It's in regards to race and ethnicity. Stack Overflow asks their respondents, you know, what are your racial and ethnic identities? And the majority of the people who participated in the survey were white or of European descent. So 70% of them or 71% of them, if you want to be specific, were of white or uh, European descent followed by South Asian with um, 12% and followed by Hispanic or Latino. The reason why I include this as well, because this is based in in America. I'd love to see what this was for UK though, to be honest. And, you know, as you go lower down, you'd see that black or African descent was 3.6%, which is one of the lowest along with multiracial, biracial and um, native Americans, basically. And, you know, what this result tells us that, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of um, inclusion of people of color in technology. But apparently the result seems to be improving year over year. This year, 22% of the respondents are people of color and basically meaning people who chose the non-white option. And last year it was 19% in the United States. So you can see there's a, there's a gradual improvement. One thing I did think was interesting, though, was that you have more in terms of professional developers. It's also a similar story you got um some three percent of the people responded to the survey being white or of european descent uh descent I should say, and you have black or African descent being a three point one percent but if you look at the students now who participate in the surveys, you got more black or African students than you do of uh, professional development so to me this this sounds one thing you can see there's an improvement. There's always a gradual improvement. If you've got more students right now who are Black and of African uh, descent that are actually studying programming, that are actually doing engineering courses, that means it's a good thing. But another thing it tells me is that we do need to do more work in, in order to make sure that we provide that exposure for um, people of colour and women in technology. So enough of me blabbering on. What would what, what you guys have to say about the race and ethnicity? What does the result tell you?
2: I was genuinely shocked. To be honest, um, and I understand because I, I was genuinely shocked. And like you said, you, you know, the curiosity as to what it would be in Europe. But then when you think of European countries outside of the UK, it's, it's going to be a very similar, similar result because of the demographic from the ratio of black to white in, in, in the rest of Europe compared to just the UK who would be in a professional setting, you know, Mm. Um, or have access to be able to study those STEM subjects. And I'm saying mm. this from, coming from a place in Belgium, on how the educational system was structured, you would not see a lot of minority, ethnic minority group, you know, striving to be, striving to be like top-end earners, developers, doctors, you know, all those high-end jobs. And even speaking to a friend of mine who is in Belgium at the moment, Studied computer science, he 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 walks up to like, let's say Canary Wharf in in Belgium, right? And people are looking Mm -hmm. at him like, why are you here? And when he speaks, speaks Flemish, they are like, Oh, you you speak the language? And it's like, I grew up here, I've been here since I was six years old. But there is still (laughs) such a you know barrier that they don't basically they don't see, you know, minorities crossing it. So when I saw the mm-hmm. result, I was on one hand I was disappointed, but like you said, the fact that the student part is growing is going to trickle, you know, into the, the the um the professional, the professional um developers role in the future. So yeah. that increases the number, but it it does show that you mm-hmm. know there is still a lot of work to do because I think in our small bubble or in my small bubble we do see like minorities coming up, but then it's like oh, once you stick your head outside the bubble, it's like, oh, it's no, it's, there's basically no one else than the bubble you live in. So it just shows how small of a number of minorities are.
1: Absolutely. Just to, before you e, want to free something, just to add on to what you said, in terms of that bubble thing, you're absolutely correct. Because when I was, um, you know, when we were in uni, me seeing you guys and a couple of the other people of colour in our year, it made me think that, you know, oh man, there's like, there's lots of different, like, you know, ethnicities, minorities, you know, studying computer science. But not until when I went to do my placement and me being like, you know, the second black guy, the second programmer, basically. Like, I was, it was me, it was only two black people that are programmers. So if you look at it on a low level or on a local level, what I mean by that is basically my surroundings, you would think that, oh, man, this stuff is improving because I see my peers. So you'd think it's improving, right? But if you look at it on a higher level, sort of like when you expose yourself into organizations and companies, you'd see that, man, there's actually a few of us. It's very, you know, sparse. Do you see what I'm saying? It's very, um, it's not a high number. So I think the outlooks in which you look at these two points is very important. On a low level, you think, yes, there's a, there's a lot of us. On a high level, where you've got more exposure, you realize that there isn't as much of us. So there's definitely more work that needs
0: to be done. What do you have to say about this, E123? Um, yeah, I was a bit shocked because, as you said, like, Within our bubble, we should see like people who look like us uh, as developers, and they're talking about the stuff they've developed and whatnot. Especially when online, when I see these um, African or black uh, developers or people who do like talks online and stuff on YouTube or whatever the case may be, um, yeah, you, you just think, okay, cool. Like it, in the back of my mind, I don't think there's an issue because I always see it maybe because I speak to people who look like me and they talk about web development or whether, whether other technologies, but then when you actually go to the real world or you go into a company, you'll be like, only, only two or three. <laughs> <laughs> only two or three uh, unicorns. Uh, yeah, yeah, unicorns in the, in the company. Okay? Um, whoa, like, that's really strange because I've just been back in uni or back or when I've been looking at the uh, the talk shows or um, presentations online I'm seeing a lot of black people people of color speaking about technology so it's a bit weird in that sense but um, I'm not sure why that is the case maybe why we're um, at the lower percentage of the uh, of the charts I don't know whether it's I don't know exposure or just the determination or I, I don't know the interest what it is. I don't know because if you compare it to like other other categories or other um, career aspects such as like rap or not rap. Sorry, I mean like <laughs> music and rap and hip hop and stuff like that. You, <laughs> I'm sure that I'm <laughs> sure people of color and uh, and black people 8 percent. and then the other and the other what's it, um, uh, ethnicities would probably. It'll probably be a back-to-back switch, basically. Mm. So, yeah, I'm not too sure what it is, but yeah, it's really weird.
1: I mean, it's interesting you say that because we have discussed this in a previous podcast and, you know, one of the main things is exposure. You know, you've got to look at things like exposure. You've got to look at things as... Exposure is key, to be honest. In schools, um, you've got... Also, you have to break down the structure that computer science and engineering is only for a specific type of people, you know. I remember coming to, you know, starting uni and... I probably didn't look like a typical, you know, developer. Do you see what I'm saying? Like Air Force's hoodie, I'm probably not your, your typical developer, but what they're probably used to seeing is a bunch of white guys in hoodies and, you know, um, code, and, and they're probably parked by it. Do you see what I'm saying? I think mm-hmm. we need we need to see more people providing exposure, people like us. You know, I'll, I'll point the finger at us as well and say, we're as responsible to ensure that, you know, we project you know, we show that programming is, is it could be done by us as well. Well, it's for, it's for everyone. You know what I'm saying? We don't force it down people's throats, but at least show people that, man, we do exist. And our next initiatives and what, one of the things I want us to do more in Quadrum, because I do think we're responsible as well, is to push more the agenda of introducing uh, computer science and engineering to, you know, to, to minorities like ourselves. And, or should I just say, you know, black people like ourselves and other, you know, minorities as well. I think we do have a role to play. And I think that we need to talk more about this within ourselves as to what role we could play. And I think so far we're playing our own role. You know, I feel like we've crafted our own image into making programming look, quote unquote, cool. But we've given it a signal whereby it's not presenting computer science in the general setting, basically. You get what I'm saying, right? Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Sweet. Cool. Let's move on to our next result then. Uh, in terms of gender, though, this is another interesting one. Of course, we got more re- male respondents than, than female so we got 91%, 92% of people were male that um, basically participated in the survey. 8% of them were uh, women and the rest, such as non-binary, etc., were 1.2%, basically. And again, it still shows that there's still a lot to be done in terms of the inclusion of women in technology, basically. Just similar with the minorities issues, you know, we still have to try and get more um, women or females into, into STEM. So I think more work needs to be done in that angle as well. If you look at the results in terms of students, though, you are getting more females that are basically getting into computer science and engineering and, and all that stuff. So you can see with the students, is improving. But just like the, the um, ethnicity one, it's not a major improvement, but it's a, it's a very small gradual improvement. So there's still a lot of work to be done on that matter. Is there anything you guys want to want
2: to add on gender? I think it'd been, um, you know, like you mentioned about the students, and it'd um, started early from primary school. I believe it will, to some extent, level the, the playing field by the time, um, students get to, gets to uni and then they can actively pursue it. The fear is just what happens in primary school, um, in, in secondary school, because like now my sister is interested in it. She's 11, but by the time she's doing GCS, GCF, is she going to be encouraged to do something else? or would she stay you know, within that technological field and decide to pursue it in uni? So it's that transition that will be key to make sure we have more females you know, to trickle up into the professional field.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we did, again, once again, I'm going to be the plug in this podcast. We did speak about this in, a, in one of our recent episodes. You guys feel free to check it out. And we did discuss a few interesting points on this. And you did mention that as one, I, which I do agree with. I think earlier exposure to um girls at a young age provides them with a um, a better understanding number one and also gives them the ability to to have more choices i don't think you should introduce that as a la- at a later point whereby they've seen how the world really works in terms of males and females in in um in different roles basically so i think early exposure plays a key role and again breaking down the stigma that engineering is mainly you know although it is a mainly is a male-dominated thought but breaking that stigma down and also bringing more role models into schools that are actually from um, engineering practices. You know, one thing I've always said about school is that we're learning maths, we're learning all these science stuff, but the only trips they still take us on is to to tape museum. Why? Mm. You know? Why don't you tell me how maths is going to be used? Take me to, to um, Canary Wharf and see how maths has been used by the traders. Um, if we learn English, why don't you take me to, you know, Shakespeare's museum or whatever? You know, I feel like education needs to be more practical rather than theoretical. You know, if you we're if teaching, teaching us about tech, take me to the sense of tech, you know, Silicon Roundabout in, in, in London. You know, let me see. Let us see what those guys are doing there, and how you know, you know, show us how these guys are developing games, how they're developing cool stuff like mobile apps, the games you play, such as the Granny Run and you know, skateboard surf. Um, you know, all this, all these different stuff. And I think you're likely to to see a a resurgence of students who who will be more interested. And I think the government right now is just being lazy with the approach, and education in general is 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 um
0: antiquated. Yeah, a follow on for what you said. I think um. I think the government's a bit scared. They don't want (laughs) to. They 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 might lose their their workers. So
1: uh, (laughs) (laughs) what do you mean?
0: Because yeah, because imagine like fifteen-year-old or I don't know, seventeen or nineteen-year-old being exposed to like what they do in Google and so they go to a Google office and one of the the managers or the project teams are showing them what they do with like games and stuff like that. If there's one like eager. 15 16, 19 year old that sees what they're doing and they ask him, oh what language is that and he probably says oh it's done in um c sharp for example he'll be like okay he'll take a note and then he'll go back <laughs> to his room and he'll probably do he'll, he'll, he'll probably create some crazy game or something, something like that and become like a i don't know a, a, a millionaire in like two weeks or something like that Do you see what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah,
1: I just like the fact that you've sort of given us like a scripted overview, a story as to how this guy goes from (laughs) a secondary school student to a a millionaire game
0: developer. (laughs) That's how it happens. So they just want to keep away from them at the right time so that, you know, there's no like, you know, a lot of competition for the, you know, the big government businesses. So I disagree, but I understand where you're coming from.
1: And the reason why I disagree is because, like I said, there's tech positions in London that needs to be filled. And the government knows this, you know, even their sector themselves, the .gov, they need lots of developers. Like most of these websites we're using, like Company House and stuff, when we were using them, like earlier when we first started, they were so annoying. Like just to fill in your tax, you got like bulky UI, even student finance experience. You saw the website. You saw how mundane and like, you know boring the user interface was so i think now they're starting to understand that man we need to make this stuff seem more presentable make this stuff give it a better experience i don't believe that you know the government don't want to expose these students i just feel like they don't have just like with brexit which we're not going to talk about here they don't have the right understanding that sort of approach they should take this is what i suggest the government should do they should look at a model that's doing really well perhaps maybe america and or maybe poland because russia poland or russia they seem to produce and India, some of the best developers in the world, based on my experience, look at the templates and model these guys are doing to introduce students into in technology from a young age and then follow that same template. Do you see where I'm coming from? So I disagree with that sentiment, but yeah, I think um, that's the approach that should be taken. Moving on to our next question. This question is, one individual person will have the most influence in tech this year. And, um, it's just a random question. And who do you guys think would be the most influence in tech this year? What do you think respondents said? Or what do you guys think personally as your own answer? Most likely, uh, Elon Musk, my
2: guy. To be honest, I, I don't know if it would be Elon, Elon Musk. Um, I, I didn't, I couldn't really think, think of anyone, but for some reason, Elon Musk wasn't my, my first choice.
1: I'm not going to lie. They did, um, Jack Marder either. He's like the last two. That's just crazy. Zero point two percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. He did him 30, man. But um as much as I'm not an Elon fanboy or anything, I do think Elon Musk will probably be the most influential. I would say this year, but I think he has been one of the most influential in tech with the things he's done, you know, he's really put his money where, where his mouth is and just done things and he said things and done them. The only thing is that will he deliver them on time? That's another story. But I do think Elon is is definitely um a huge one. Um, and also you got to give credit to the, you know, the people who are developing our, our frameworks, you know, the developers who are developing our frameworks for React, for Nodes. I think those guys are, should also get credit as the most influential people um, in the year as well, which I think in this survey they have as well. And yeah, I think it's um, they, they are just as important as well as the guys who are building products. But you need to think about the guys that are also creating these languages and frameworks, such as Nodes, such as Angular and etc., the result says that most people said Elon Musk with thirty percent. Well, Elon Musk, for those who don't know, is the CEO of SpaceX and Tesla. Jeff Bezos, Bezos is the CEO of Amazon with seven point two percent. And thirdly is Satya Nadella, who is the current CEO of Microsoft. And fourth, people were you know very humble by saying me slash uh, myself with two point five percent. And then you know fifth, they put a guy called Donald Trump on the list. So um. I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking. Um, I really don't know how he's going to influence tech, but the ads, maybe they're trying to troll people, or maybe they're trying to say probably by the regulations he's going to put in, that's probably how he'll influence it. Because if you look at what's already happened with Huawei, he's banned them in America. Yeah, and in in itself, that's influencing tech. Do you understand yes. whether that's positive or negative? So I found that interesting. And then you got other people like Mark Zuckerberg lower down, and other people um creators sort of. Programming languages, um, people that lead AI and stuff at like Google and stuff like that. So yeah, but those are the main four, basically. What do you guys think about this
2: result? I agree with the Donald Trump one um, when you said it's, you know, I, um, he will influence you because he did have that be- that meeting with where well, he had one with uh, <laughs> with the head of Twitter, but that was that was for some <laughs> other of reason. Yeah, beginning of his um, presidency, he, he did meet with all the major heads um in technology in America. And you know, the different policies he's he has been implementing will affect uh technology, especially in the States, as this was, you know, um done in the States. But then also I was saying it could be yeah. reverse psychology where, you know, with people trying to prove or disprove certain of his claims, you know, might encourage people to go, you know, go out there and, and create something, which, you know, in turn where people said me or myself, they might be speaking for themselves.
1: So now it's going to get a bit more interesting. We're moving on to languages territory in terms of programming, scripting and markup languages, developers were asked, you know, which ones they used the most and yeah, which one was commonly used by developers basically. And JavaScript again, JavaScript always appears like, yeah, seventh time, this is the seventh year in a row that JavaScript is, is, is the most commonly used program language followed by uh, HTML slash CSS with 63.5%, then SQL with uh, 54%, and Python with 41.7%. But another thing that's interesting in this result is that Python has risen in the ranks again, basically. Python keeps growing fast as the major programming language of today, beating C and PHP the year before. So I-, I think that's pretty interesting and very relatable to me as well. And in terms of professional developers, yeah, the the results look similar as well. Do you guys have anything to say in terms of these results for the most um, used programming scripts and in markup languages? Um, there's one called um, Rust. I've never seen that before. Yeah, but that's not a, it's not a scripting or markup language. So no, what, is it just a framework oh no 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 you know you're right yeah it is it is on the list but it's more of programming language oh, okay yeah, it is. So, yeah yeah but we're going to discuss that further oh,
2: further. Yeah yeah, yeah 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 so it's interesting what do you, you want to say brandon um i just want to say can we please give an applause to sql no.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> how did i know this was coming
2: oh my days this guy was sticking in the top three if this was a pyramid <laughs> we would come with we keep, stop laughing <laughs> That's my preferred choice of programming. Thank
1: you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, my goodness. Right, we we'll, we'll let you have your moment there, Brandon. No worries. Moving on to uh, web frameworks. The most used web frameworks today, judging by the respondents' uh, response, is uh, jQuery with 49%, React with 31 Angular in third place with 31%. And the same similar could be said um, for the professional developers as well. If you're looking at the least used web framework, you would see Drupal, Ruby and Rails, which I'm triggered by, and Laravel, which I'm sure James would be triggered by and gutted about. But um, yeah, it, it is what it is.
2: What do you guys think about the results in terms of web frameworks? Um, funny enough, I did my dissertation on Drupal. And mm-hmm. you know. I was my research on how to build something with Drupal. So I'm actually surprised to see it on the list. Um, but yeah i was actually surprised how low Laravel is, but then this goes back to the bubble thing. I was saying I'm in I'm the bubble whereby the things I hear about compared to everything else going out there, because I don't know Express. Mm. Never. Heard. It's a JavaScript
0: framework. What did you, you want to say? You want to free? Yeah, I wanted to say a bit surprised with Laravel, especially. Um, I heard from James, and I heard it from someone else as well about you know how useful Laravel is, and I thought it would be like you know a lot popular than it is on the. Um, on the survey, but you know, I was a bit surprised about that. Um, if we look at other
1: frameworks and libraries and tools that were uh, mostly used by the developers who responded to the survey, mm-hmm. Node.js is a- a ranked highest, followed by .NET with a uh, 38% and followed by .NET Core, mm-hmm. then followed by Pandas, which I'll be honest, I've never heard of, and followed by React Native, which I found um, interesting. Moving on to the next result, in regards to the most used databases by developers, based on people who responded to the survey, MySQL was the highest with 52% followed by Postgres, SQL, and thirdly, Microsoft SQL server. And last year, MySQL was the most commonly used database. Postgres taken second place spot this year. Basically, taking Microsoft SQL Server out of second place, which I found interesting actually. I haven't really used Postgres much. Um, we used it in, in uni, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, on that yeah. group project.
0: Anything you have to say? Microsoft SQL Server is probably most commonly used, like in well, most industries I see. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that Postgres and um, MySQL up there. Well, I think yeah, MySQL mostly uses like web development and stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's understandable. Progress. yeah, that's a bit surprising for me, but yeah, yeah, I'm surprised by progress as well because
1: when I was in placement, yeah, I was mainly working with a Microsoft SQL server, and that was what was used mostly by enterprises. So, um, that is a shocker for me. Moving on to most loved, dreaded, and wanted languages. So, what do
0: you think is the most loved language? Love possibly, I'm guessing, is it JavaScript or no, maybe. It is one of the, one of those three, I think. That's interesting because I thought the same thing as well. I thought it would be JavaScript. I'll
1: be honest with you. I mm. thought I would be JavaScript or Python because of the huge prominence. Mm. But surprisingly, first and for the fourth, I believe it's like the fourth year in a row now. Rust is the most loved programming language amongst the the respondents, and it's weird because I haven't really heard much about Rust. Basically, So all I know is it's a multi paradigm systems programming language and it's low level basically. Oh okay. And yeah, mainly used for can't remember what it's mainly useful. I think it's mainly embedded systems, I believe. I don't know. Oh, okay. It's it's basically useful systems programming. Oh okay. And yeah, it's um it's quite similar to C plus Plus. Yeah, yeah, oh, similar okay. to C plus plus in terms of uh, syntax. Mm. So that was interesting to see that that was the most loved, knowing like <laughs> C plus plus as well. So I just found that absurd. Um <laughs> In regards to Python, yeah, I'm not surprised by that being most loved. Like, I've even started doing Python myself and teaching my cousin Python. Mm. Um, and then followed by TypeScript, third place. What about the dreaded? What do you think is the most dreaded language? <laughs> I'll give you a clue. You know this one.
0: <laughs> Probably Java. <drafting Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's what I would think it was as well. But um,
0: it's actually VBA vba oh yeah yeah. yeah 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 that's that's correct that is correct jesus yeah they need to yeah, see yeah. it out. <laughs> they need to see it out seriously man come on apparently
1: vba and object c are basically the most dreaded languages Jeez, and most dreaded in terms that high percentage of developers who are currently using the languages they express that they have no interest in continuing to, to do so. Don't blame them. Which is interesting. And then you've got like uh, like PHP in fourth place <laughs> or like fifth place. And I'm like, man, I'm, I am more surprised by that. Like, <laughs> I am touching PHP again. <laughs> Literally. I dread PHP myself. Literally, man. But in regards to the most wanted languages, um, it's Python, JavaScript, and Go. The language developed by Google, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard of Go? Yeah, I've heard of Go. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the top three ones in languages: Python, JavaScript, and Go. And I'm not surprised the top two are the ones I'm currently dabbling with right now as well. So, um, yes, it's interesting to see. cool Moving on to frameworks, what do you think is the most loved, dreaded web frameworks? Um, most loved. Let's start with most loved. What do you think is most loved?
0: Most loved will probably be too sure. You know, maybe Hadoop or something. Hadoop. <laughs> you said Hadoop. <laughs> are you are you serious?
1: Maybe. Lucky guess. That was Hadoop. a joke, isn't it? Like Hadoop? dupe. <laughs> nah, no way. Hadoop, bootstrap, maybe, I don't know. Uh most popular Hadoop, you know. <laughs> 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 most popular um web frameworks are React, mm-hmm. uh followed by Vue. Huh? And thirdly, um Express. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that's not surprised to me. React has been huge. I've been hearing yeah, it everywhere. Everywhere. I've been uh, dabbling with it myself. So um, mm. yeah, I'm not surprised by that. But in terms of Vue, I haven't done much stuff with Vue. I know it's also a JavaScript framework. That's mainly mainly really useful. Why. Yeah, I know, right? I know Vue is mainly used for creating interfaces and creating single page web applications. Oh, Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. And Express as well is also a Node.js or JavaScript frameworks as well. So, man, JavaScript is just mm-hmm. taking over the world, man. literally dominating, man. In terms of dreaded, misdreaded, Drupal is number one with 70%, followed by jQuery oh. with 55, and Ruby on Rails, Damn. 43. Which I'm sort of like, I'm triggered by. <laughs> <laughs> literally, man, Ruby on Rails is. I like Ruby on Rails. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting, though. Um, I wonder why that is
0: maybe is it the complexity maybe or is it just like you, you know then ones when you uh, open your laptop you'll be like oh damn okay I have to go through this this crazy stuff again hmm. I don't know you know I don't think Ruben Rose is, is complex and
1: I wouldn't necessarily say jQuery is complex I would probably say jQuery is quite heavy but I don't think Ruben Rose I would I don't see any issues with Ruben Rose in terms of wanted, though, the most wanted language or web frameworks, I should say, is React.js with 22%, followed by Vue with 16 and thirdly, Angular. That's pretty cool. I'm not actually surprised by that, actually. Oh, yeah. Angular, yeah. yeah. I hear about Angular a lot. Like Marmite. So, yeah. Moving on to the most loved, dreaded, and wanted databases. What would you think is the most loved? If you could just provide one dreaded and wanted database uh platforms
0: i probably say love to probably maybe sql server maybe sql okay uh, interesting uh, dreaded dreaded probably be something like those crazy ones is it cassandra or something <laughs> whoa you're yeah,
1: actually pretty close actually Damn. Oh, yeah. And the other one. Uh... Cassandra, you know, why did he give
0: it oh, that Oh, man. <laughs> Probably, I don't know. Someone said ex- Cassandra. Someone's I fi- just named
1: literally, him. the guy was <laughs> just like, man, I'll never forget Cassandra, what she did to me. I'm going to name the uh, programming language. <laughs> just made it so bad people. <laughs> literally. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <what> is it? <laughs> literally, he was angry when he was writing a language. He's like, man, Cassandra, man. But what about in terms of uh wanted? Most wanted a dupe. <laughs> oh, what is you with Hadoop? Oh my days. Why do you keep on seeing a Hadoop? Hadoop is not even on this list, bro. Oh my days. But um I'll give you the results. So the most loved, which uh, I I Redis, I'm pretty surprised is the most loved, with 71% followed by Postgres and with 70% and followed by Elasticsearch. Well, apparently Redis is the most loved database for the third year in a row now, meaning that you know most developers want to continue working with it than any other database. In terms of dreaded Couchbase, oh, wow. they did Oracle Day. Yeah, I've never heard of Couchbase myself. Couchbase with sixty-three percent is the most dreaded, followed by Oracle <laughs> well, with sixty-two percent. Is I, I know like Larry Ellison's going to be upset about that, followed by um, Cassandra. <laughs> with uh, 53% damn and then MySQL I'm surprised is fourth as the most dreaded oh, wow. what interesting that is very interesting um, in terms of wanted MongoDB with 18% mm. is most wanted Postgres with 14% and Elasticsearch with 11.1% so yeah, yeah that's the most loved dreaded and wanted databases so moving on to our last few what is the most loved dreaded and wanted platforms I'll just say um, Linux is the most loved followed by Docker Followed by Kubernetes. I don't know if you're familiar with Kubernetes. Oh, what is that? It's a container orchestration platform. So it basically like orchestrates Docker containers, pushing applications into production, basically. Oh. You're familiar with Docker, right? Docker, 50-50, not, not so much. So essentially, Docker is just basically a tool. is used to develop, create, and run applications in containers. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah using containers, cool. yeah, yeah. basically. And all uh, Kubernetes does is basically, like, it orchestrates, builds, and distributes these Docker containers, basically. Docker, okay, I get you, yeah. Docker is, is most loved, and Kubernetes, which I'm not surprised by. People are using a lot of containers. Um, developers are using a lot of containers for nowadays, which makes sense, mm-hmm. because it makes the whole deployment process much more easier. Yeah. Um, in terms of most dreaded, man, they did WordPress Day. Oh, damn. WordPress. Um, WordPress is number one. Wow. I'm quite... Surprised to be honest. Sixty percent of developers don't want to work with it anymore. Followed by IBM Cloud or Watson. Who the hell uses that? (laughs) With fifty-five percent, and then Heroku. What? Oh damn. With forty-seven percent. Oh wow, Mm, that's interesting. I pretty much like Heroku. I think it's cool. I think it's good for easily pushing your platform to a server. In terms of most wanted, I'm not surprised by this. Docker, AWS, and Android are the top three. And it makes sense because people are now moving to services like AWS and, you know, GCP, Google Cloud Platform, to basically distribute their software and basically manage it. And I'm not surprised by this either. But I do warn, man, understanding that AWS stuff is crazy, man. Yeah, I've tried it myself. Oh, my days. It It is. is. They need to simplify that process. I don't know. It's really off-putting, man. It takes hours. (laughs) Jeez. It's a lot of time. It's crazy. 100%, 100%. Moving on, the most popular development environments. Actually, this result actually varies by by job role, to be honest. It varies. So the most popular development environments, firstly, is Visual Studio Code with 50%, followed by Visual Studio with 32%, followed by NoPi++. And that one sort of caught me off guard, because I'm quite surprised people still use plus as a development environment. I know you still use it, so don't try and say No. (laughs) Not gonna lie, go. I know you used to use it. I, I remember I used to watch you know. I'd be like, "Why is this guy still using a Pi++? plus Like, I don't know where it, is. it just makes it. I don't, it just makes it easier. But I don't know where it is. I just, I just like. It. That's strange. I mean, if it works for you, I guess it works for you, right? You know, you don't, you don't get to pick your colors, your background colors. You can't go dark mode. You know, you can't basically like get auto. Actually, no, I think you do get auto type. Yeah, you do. As well. you do. Oh, so correct. Yeah, as long as you okay, going to the right, uh, language settings. Okay. Okay, cool, cool, cool. But you don't get all the other perks that we get yeah, in I mean, VS Code yeah. or Sublime. I mean, yeah, the, all the dark
0: mode and stuff is not really... That's not necessary no. that for me. Dark mode is the future. <laughs> <laughs> like, dark mode is... Uh, no, I'm know, kidding, it's, man. It's, just, it's optional
1: for me. No, no i'm bad. joking man yeah, yeah, yeah there's nothing special about dark mode yeah. literally it's just they've just literally changed the color yeah. of your your editor so yeah that makes sense in terms of web developers their top three is visual studio code visual studio Not- notepad plus plus in terms of mobile developers so android studio visual studio code and xcode for mobile developers those were the top three and for site reliability engineers and devops they use visual studio code was number one for them Them. Secondly, and IntelliJ, which I found interesting. Data scientists were more likely to use IPython slash Jupyter, which I've never heard of. Never heard of um, Jupiter. Oh, you've heard of Jupyter? I said I've never heard of Jupyter. Oh, never? Oh, okay, cool. And moving on to the last one, which I think is quite interesting. This is in terms of salaries worldwide, based on um, developers who respond to this survey. What languages are associated with the highest
0: salaries worldwide? What would you say? Most likely, JavaScript. Okay. Yeah. JavaScript, no, or TypeScript, those type of languages. Um, I would have said the
1: same thing as well if I didn't see the results of the survey, but it turns out Clojure is number one, followed by F-sharp. What? <laughs> followed by Go and Scala, or Scala, however you pronounce it. Yeah, so Clojure with 90k in dollars, that is, then F-sharp with 80k and Go language. 80K as well, which I found, I found, um, interesting.
0: interesting. Interesting.
1: Interesting. And this is like globally, if you look at the bottom, the roles associated with the least salaries, it's like Java with 52K, C with 52K as well, as well as assembly. And yeah, as you go up, JavaScript is with 56, I was pretty surprised. If you look at America though, languages associated with the high salaries, it's a scalar or Scala and it's uh that's with 143k in america you can see the differences now remember when i was telling you about the salary in america how it's different yeah like yeah. you can see it already here yeah scalar is 143k closure is 139 and go with 136 which is you know interesting and even languages like javascript you'll still get 110k and sql you still get 110k and html you and css you'll still get 105 so you can see like the difference with salaries in UK and US basically how they differ. Yeah. Well yeah. in terms of that last result, would you say you're you're surprised by that?
0: Yeah, very surprised. Um i thought JavaScript would be well up there. Yeah. But um I'm guessing Costco and Scala's a bit new probably uh, be more demanding really so higher wages. Yeah. My question is
1: coming back to that, why do you think JavaScript would be number one
0: then? Um because of complexity and because of demand as well because a lot of well a lot of uh, i see a lot of adverts for like javascript developers or Mm. uh, web developers with knowledge of JavaScript and jquery and whatnot so i would expected um yeah them to be way up there
1: i i understand i see where your logic is going there in my understanding i think that those languages are up there based on complexity and i feel like the languages that require like a lot of expert knowledge, those are the ones that basically you get high pay for, mm. in my understanding, basically. And yes, yeah, Scala is is pretty new, to be honest. So it makes sense why they would give developers again high pay for it, as well as F-Sharp, which I'm not sure when F-Sharp was released. Like what? Yeah, 2019 as well. Oh, okay. Which is interesting. Go. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that actually. So it's a new language as well that's gaining prominence as well. So you can see that these new languages that do require deeper understanding of the language are associated with the highest salaries basically. So yeah, that's a wrap with the Stack Overflow developers survey. I think it's been pretty interesting. Some of these results we've seen and uh, some of the things we still need to do in technology in terms of inclusion and you know other areas and in terms of exposure and stuff like that basically so yeah now we hope you've enjoyed this segment and hopefully it's been useful to you in in one way or the other now we're going to move to our tech in africa segment
2: All right, guys, so this is the next segment of the podcast, which is the tech in Africa. And today we'll be talking about, you know, Google building an AI lab in Ghana. And first, this came up last year. There was an article in 2018 that came up on CNN, but then it came back. It's popped up again this year, 2019. You know, I'll just give a quick background as to why this has come up. So when you have to help me with his name here eric smith yes <laughs> i'm terrible <laughs> with guys when he was giving his keynote in 2010
1: so, so before you carry on who is eric smith just for a bit of context oh, yeah.
2: okay so eric smith is the former ceo and chairman of google and to be honest i don't even remember who's who is the current
1: the current ceo is a uh, ceo is a guy called sundar pichai oh yeah not American. No, no, he is American, but I think he was born in India.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, so in 2010, Eric Schmidt was giving a keynote in Barcelona to do with Android activations globally. And during his presentation, he was asked the question why Africa was dark. So there there were no activities, per se, going on in Africa to do with Android. And it was not per se that Africa was dark, because in 2013 in San Francisco, he was asked a similar question when they were talking about cloud activations. And again, the question came out as what happened to Africa. And in that moment, it seemed that Google didn't have any activities in Africa from both maps, but the illustrations were wrong. They were already active in Africa, but they decided to take a different route. And that was to strengthen the educational institution by providing infrastructure and software. Then from these institutions build technology communities. So that was the route that Google went through. Now, Google having gone for strengthening the educational institution and providing those infrastructures and software um, to build technology companies, um, technology communities in Africa, what do you think about them going through that route before we speak about where they're actually building the AI lab?
1: Um, I think it's actually great, you know, um, I think it's it's a great foundation to start from institutions because, you know, I went to an event back in November, a Google event called Flutter. And Flutter is, the, is basically a new language that Google's introducing. And one thing that kind of shocked me whilst at this event was um, the amount of developers that were from Nigeria, mm. like from various locations, from the north, from the east, and, you know, different locations. And so I asked one of my friends, why is there so much, because he's from Nigeria. And I was asking him, like, why is there so much, like, you know, developers in Nigeria in this event, he was like, man, Google's got this thing called a uh, developers network that they're building. Basically, they're basically going into institutions and basically, you know, trying to build communities and get students into into software engineering. And through these developer mm-hmm. com- uh, communities, they are like growing rapidly. And I was like, man, this is great. And then hopefully this will basically allow there to be more communities where, you know, research has been done, where, you know, discussions about technology has been made and thus take us to the next level of, you know, having research center where we could basically do research. So I think, yeah, it's a great plan. What do you think?
2: Yeah, um, definitely agree as to the, the road. They didn't just come in, pour a lot of money into companies that are already there. They actually did make sure to build a community and give people the skill set. Because when you get to this stage, you don't you know, you know start beginning to outsource people. But now it's people who are in-house, who will be able mm. to manage it, who will be able to grow it and build it for for the needs. Which will which we'll speak about later. Why you know one of the areas AI is being used in Africa, and you you mentioned something about the um the network that Google is um had built. It it says yeah um um there are hardly any young software developers you would meet in any of the major African countries who have not been part of somewhat or somewhat influenced by Google's university based developers group, mm-hmm. and um. So Google was not actually ignoring Africa. They were just trying to figure out a solution. And this solution has now come in many forms, massive infrastructure projects, digital skills, training for millions, investment into Africa's startup ecosystem, and most recently the announcement of the Artificial Intelligence um, Laboratory. And you mentioned you met a lot of developers from Nigeria, but Google opted to go build their AI in Ghana. So I guess we can say Ghana, <laughs> Ghana beat us at one thing, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, people, for real. You know, uh, people who don't know, I'm a Nigerian, so our jollof rice is still better, but hundred <laughs> percent. Thank you. Uh, but I guess they were the most suitable to handle something of this scale. And the reason that being is Ghana has relatively um, relative stable electricity. Um, relative security, and a decent internet infrastructure. It also has some of the best tourist destination in the developing world. All of this presents, without any hype, present Ghana as one of the best countries to actually build an AI lab. It says, um, Ghana has also become a melting pot for education in the sub-region over the years because of its um, relative stability of the country and the high standards of its institution. And, and funny enough, you remember we actually spoke about the lady... Um, who built the solar remind me. farm? Yes, the the solar farm in Ghana as well. So we we've seen massive um in- infrastructures go to to places like Ghana. It says there's also a steady education pipeline between Nigeria and Ghana, in spite of um the historical ups and downs between both countries. So I just wanted to know from because we know South Africa is one of the leading people in tech. We're talking about places like Nairobi for developers and some of the startups that are being built up there. Mm -hmm. What do you think about Ghana being, you know, chosen as a place to go to? Because compared to those countries, they're actually small. Mm.
1: It's a good point, actually, yeah. I think it's uh, interesting, but, you know... A company like Google surely has great reasons, as you've mentioned, such as it being a great melting point for um, education, basically. And it has a robust network of academic institutions as well as infrastructure. So this makes a lot of sense. Whereas if you look at Nigeria or, you know, maybe other places, you know, because I'm surprised they didn't say Kenya. Like, even if they didn't choose Nigeria, you know, I'm surprised they didn't say Kenya. It's startup industry network is booming, it's doing great. Um, but I guess Ghana made more sense to them because of this academic institution thing that they want to build. You know, apparently Ghana has, you know, some of the most prestigious non-English universities in Africa. So that's very interesting. So I'm guessing what Google want to do with this is basically get them while they're young. Use this influence in these institutions that Ghana has, these great institutions that Ghana has and use it to basically breed the future of technology in Africa. So to me, you know, based on Google's standpoint on you know this network in- infrastructure stuff and academic institutions, I think uh, it makes sense. And in that point, it makes sense because if you look at Nigeria's education sector, you can see like it's declining. Do you see what I'm saying? Based on what I've read, apparently there's there's issues. It's not stable or great as Ghana's one. So I think it makes sense as well. And also, I think what I like about Google and you know companies such as Google is that they always think about the future. You know, one thing that, you know, I feel African needs to do more. And what I mean by this is that they already think that, okay, if we can get the all, stay young and basically get all these guys into technology and get them to start researching into, you know, the future of tech and use that to thus help Africa, then that means we'll have bigger options of developers of network that we could eventually use. Do you see what I'm saying? Because the key thing that yeah. you were saying is that if Google was to fix all those things, right, who would sustain it? Do you see what I'm saying? There wouldn't be anyone to sustain this work they're doing, such as, you know, um, what do you call it, the Wi Fi stuff, the the AI stuff. If they didn't go through this route of basically going to institutions, the present people aren't enough to basically carry the baton on and basically, you know, do the work for the future. We know that the technology sector in terms of the young ones was lacking in Africa until Google and other tech companies started in their work. Do you see the point I'm trying to make? So I guess from that standpoint of, you know, academic institutions and infrastructure, it makes sense. It makes sense to me. Yeah,
2: I definitely agree with the the part about the stability in terms of like the electricity and internet. Even in one of the articles, the writer mentioned that the internet speed he gets in Ghana is compared to California, like it's actually on par. Wow. But if you go to a place like Nigeria, and we all know that there are issues with electricity um, stability, that would already be a cost. Mm. You can't. I don't even think you can run. You would have to have a generator to have everything running twenty four seven you know, and that is something you don't, you know, it's just an extra hassle to, to deal with. And then you have security issues as well in, in certain places in Nigeria. So I, I'm definitely, I definitely agree with that. But what do you think about, like, what do you think we can actually do with this AI in, in Africa? I mean, because because we've seen, even the article said something interesting whereby Africa holds more secrets about humanity than anywhere else. Absolutely anywhere else in the world, and they're they're already working on big projects with other European countries to discover or bring certain things to life, especially historical, historical things back to life. So what, where else do you see this going?
1: Absolutely. I mean, like, I'm going to sound like a broken record if I keep saying this, but the article just basically said what I've been saying in all our podcasts and you could go and backtrack it because in all our podcasts, I always say that if we applied the technology that we'll currently have in the Western world, such as AI, such as, you know, data analytics and the other, you know, forms of technology we use here, and we took it back to Africa. Africa would be like one of the greatest, would be the greatest continent because Africa itself has unique problems in which these technologies can help solve. Do you see what I'm saying? For example, you know, when we spoke about the Uber stuff, you were saying, um, should we get Uber in, um, in Nigeria or something like that? Or maybe I misconstrued what you were saying. And I was like, no, we need to solve our own. We need to create apps that solve our own unique problems. So imagine bringing a, a technology such as AI into Africa. That's great. It's going to solve a plethora of problems in in, in areas such as agriculture, in areas such as medicine, in, in areas such as, you know, transport and traffic, as we know how these are the issues we're currently having. Do you see what I'm trying to say? So I do believe that, you know, having AI in in, uh, in Africa is going to bring many benefits to us because we have our own unique problems in which we can use technology to solve. And guess what? Once we use technology to solve these unique problems, guess what we can do? The Western world can use it to learn from Mm -hmm. us and see how they could use how we've used AI to solve some of the issues they're having or going to have. Do you see what I'm trying to say? That's the beauty of having different continents. We all have unique problems in which need solving. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? And I think somewhere in the article, it mentioned how, you know, a similar thing happened to, to China. China isn't sleeping on AI once AI was introduced there. Look at the crazy stuff they've been doing with AI you know, a lot of innovations are being built with with the help of machine learning in uh, China, mm-hmm. basically. Do you see what I'm saying? And they are basically using this stuff to open markets and create new ones that haven't even existed yet. Do you see what I'm saying? So if we could do that same thing or something similar and use our unique problems and use AI to solve our unique problems, we could potentially open new markets worldwide and basically solve problems that you know probably seemed impossible so i definitely think you know um ai is is needed but after you tell me your your um your point of view i would like to ask you a question myself in regards to this
2: okay um yeah so my point of view about what we can build with with ai um i've always been very interested obviously i've always said about solar solar energy and recently there was a heat wave in nigeria but people didn't even know it was a heat wave Because well, there's no proper, there's nothing in place to do like a proper weather forecast, Mm. and this is this is things that AI could easily, by gathering data around the world, could easily easily do for you. Mm. You know, um, and then when when we start talking, you've you've already touched on agriculture, which is a big thing in, in um Africa, and especially in a place like Nigeria, for example. Sorry, I could use it because that's what I know best. But even um, another article was talking about how in, in Tanzania. They use um they use an app, while um for their cassava plants, um to diagnose if you know if anything is affecting um their plants and how best to manage it, mm. and that, that comes from a from an app called um, I had it written a uh, Plant Village, which uses some um, Google's artificial intelligence machine, TensorFlow that the that the company open source yeah. to help developers create solutions in the real world problem, so we we already seen them playing around with it and this goes back to what uh, sorry when you highlighted about the the educational part and when you met other developers having people who understand our problems in-house you know Mm. and giving them that power to be able to build something to create solution that in turn can go back you know out to the western world to say okay look this is how we fix something that you're probably not facing or that you could be facing soon Mm. you know oh yeah absolutely Um, um sorry and even like um recreating historicals i saw the there's an ad that google put out about how they're using ai to complete like pictures of historical sites mm. and if we think about all the places that have been destroyed across the whole of africa through um colonization mm. like those are things that ai could bring back can you imagine the 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 history we could we could unveil mm. and you know, things we could learn that had happened thousands of years ago, that that would just be be simply amazing.
1: Mm. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. I agree with that. There's a plethora of things that could be done with AI in Africa, to be honest. And there's still a lot that, you know, we don't know that AI can do even in the Western world. So yeah, it's it's a uh, it's, it's really great thing happening. But um, huh. my question to you is, because I always like to bring a balance. I like to bring, you know, an opposing view as well. Why shouldn't AI come to Africa? That's my question. Why it shouldn't? Yeah. Are there any, you know, reasons why you think... Do you have any opposition about this, basically? Like, is is there anything that creeps you out about AI coming to Africa or that we're doing this, basically?
2: That's one of the things I was going to ask earlier, because even in the article, they, they mentioned about data privacy. And we know that the way AI, one of the key parts of AI is the data we feed into it. And it takes that to, you know, then generate, um, more data and use, you know, use that information to build, build this intelligence. And who knows? Maybe it's, it's a stigma or PTSD or whatever. I'm being dramatic, <laughs> but just the idea of the amount of things we're going to be letting into, um, the artificial, you know, giving the, the, the amount of knowledge we're feeding back in. And also the fact that. I've, I've always had a thing about big corporations having, I don't have an issue with big corporations having control of certain things, but having set control of certain things that would impact a continent like Africa. Mm. So you, you guys would have always had me be a bit tense or hesitant when it came to how China was investing in different countries in Africa. We had a podcast about that, mm. you know, so this is another thing where Google is the one driving this, right? Mm. So we're basically feeding all that back to Google. So it's not a case whereby, that the intelligence shouldn't come to africa it's a yeah. case of who is driving it what are we giving up for it you know mm. privacy the 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 data we're providing back to google you know if, if they they get their hands on it first whether we like it or not right mm. they they control it mm. when it's saying that you can create new markets and that can bring you know certain amount of Um, economic growth and finances into the continent Mm. who is getting the share of that first and this might be a bit strange i I might be thinking about it too far but it's it's what we've seen happen and it's what can happen no you're absolutely right i do see where you're coming
1: from i guess we can learn from the mistakes that's been happening in the western world to be honest with data you know if we can use use their mistake and learn from it so that we avoid having these uh you know privacy issues and i think that would be great for um, handling data and data usage as well. Actually, yeah, I see where you're coming from. But um, just to sort of flip the script a bit, you know, for me, all I'm thinking about is why are we talking about AI right now? As much as it's great, right? I feel like there's still problems that we need to solve technologically on a low level, such as ensuring that we have adequate Wi-Fi. You see what I'm saying? Having, um, you know, good internet usage, having electricity, the major problem. You see what I'm saying? I would love to see these things being solved first before we start talking about AI. But again, I have to say this because this is me providing um opposing yeah. views. So I would hate for us to just say, yes, yeah, it's, it's great, blah, blah, blah. We definitely have to look at other, other viewpoints as well. So that's my question, you know, like, I want to see things like electricity. I want to see things like Wi-Fi and data being being solved first before we start talking ab- about this stuff. Yes, we can be doing research on this stuff, but I really want to see us, you know, clamp down, clamp down on the other things as well. So, yeah, that's just all I had to say about it. Apart from that, I think you know everything else looks um, looks good.
2: Yeah, that that's a fair point, and I think that's why I wasn't too like when they said they was going to Ghana, mm. I wasn't too bothered because I know. That electricity issue is a big issue in, in a place like Nigeria mm. and I wouldn't be expecting, I mean, if you're Google, would you want to invest your money to fix that issue first, knowing mm-hmm. the stuff that you're going to go against? And this is where it's not tricky to balance between a company who Google are still a money making company. Yeah. Although they said now that they are research based company first. Yeah. Well, that research is still to, to generate money.
1: Absolutely. Uh,
2: if you're going to try and fix something like electricity in a place like Nigeria, for example, it it won't work because there are certain people who hold, who have a stronghold over that particular part of you know, the country.
1: Absolutely, well, no, no.
2: So yeah, and and I, I agree with what you're saying. Like definitely, there are things we probably should be investing our money on. Yeah, should absolutely. be building towards. But
1: absolutely, no. Don't get me wrong. I um, I'm not saying that I want Google to solve these electricity problems first, but I'm saying these are discussions I would love to be, you know, uh, initiated amongst the technologists in in Africa. Do you see what I'm trying to say? These are these are the huge topics I I want to be discussed and I want to see progress on. Basically, before we start talking about Google, in no way am I saying you know Google should fund this. I don't think they should because then we'll be giving them too much power, and they've already got a monopoly already. Do you see what I'm saying? As much as they don't want to yeah. admit it, Google is a monopoly. There are a monopoly. Do you see what I'm trying to say? So I think we've given them enough power in terms of that. So I'd love to see the government and the technologists, you know, liaise with each other and see how we could use, uh, solve the major problems of technology. And then, yeah, we could start, you know, bringing AI, you know, articles and having huge discussions about it. Not to say that AI should be, should be, should be just left out. No, I'm saying, yeah, research should continue, but there are other important areas that I think we should talk about as well yeah true. Sure. but also before we do wrap up one thing we have to give a shout out to the guy that's basically leading you know the the research facility the ai research facility in uh in Accra. his name is mustafa Sise, and he's the one that's going to be basically leading the ai intelligence research lab in um Accra, ghana so i think this is great again you know uh, mustafa he's from senegal i believe I might be wrong on this, but I think, yeah, he is from Senegal and he basically studied maths and physics at Senegal University. He then went on to study machine learning with a master's and PhD degree in Paris. And then after that, he spent some time working at Facebook, AI research, and then he moved to lead Google's AI expansion strategy in Africa, where he's currently an AI technical researcher and an hands on expert. And I love this, you know. If you're going to get someone to basically lead this stuff, it should be someone that comes from Africa itself and someone who's basically had um, hands-on experience with other major tech companies, or it's just someone who basically has a lot of knowledge in AI. And I think this is great to see. And I've seen Mustafa's, Mustafa's name around. And I think, yeah, he's, he seems like a, a good guy to be leading this. And yeah, it's I definitely had to, to put his name out there as well in case people wanted to find out about who would be leading this. And similarly as well, one thing I do like that Google's really doing is that you know they're pushing this research out into you know african institutions i don't know if you remember that video you sent me once of uh, the ted talk of a guy speaking about how you know countries like nigeria don't which is where we're from so hence we we talk about nigeria a lot countries like nigeria don't basically have good research they're right. barely doing any research into the future and this is bad because of the future of nigeria and africa but what Google's doing is actually basically going into institutions and basically giving students the opportunity to to research on AI. And also, I think they're also offering AI grants. I know they're currently offering one in uh, Tanzania, I believe. Yeah. Google are also supporting graduate programs in machine intelligence at the African Institute of Mathematical Sciences Center in Rwanda. And they're also basically providing Grants in various fields of AI and given PhD scholarships. Like this is great. We know the power of research. I know what research does for the future of an institution and the future of a of a nation. So this is something I definitely see the benefit of Google doing and AI coming to to Africa. To be honest, I think I'd love to see uh, more of this stuff being supported as well by other tech companies. But then again, it's not their, their job. The government in our countries, in countries in Africa must take the step as well. But I like this anyway. I just thought I'll, I'll add that as well. Was there anything else you wanted to add?
2: No, I think you, you hit the nail on the head with the, with that final statement. Um, even wrapping it up with the government has to play their part. because like, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Saying we don't want to give them too much power. But at Mm. the same time, we do need them to help. But at the same time, you need the government to do their part. So Mm. for now, you know, and I think, like you said, Google definitely went the right route with getting, you know, someone who is home-based and doing the whole educational system first. So, yeah, let's see where it goes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, thanks for listening to today's podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. And look out for another episode in a few weeks time also feel free to follow us on facebook twitter instagram and yeah of course soundcloud so yeah cheers peace Later.